My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Shane. I serve as the administrative pastor here at Sunrise and and also part of the teaching team. So it's a delight to be here, lead the next part of our worship gathering. And with my spare time, I am pursuing a master's degree towards mental health counseling over at Western Seminary in Portland. And as part of the curriculum there, last summer, I took a class on intercultural competencies. And, And it was basically, how do I care for people across the counseling room who come from a very different background than I do, you know, ethnically or racially or culturally in some way? And as one of those classes, a woman by the name of Lisa Achilles, who's joined me here, came and spoke and shared her story and then some intercultural lessons that she's learned along the way. And, and as I sat here listening to her, I was mesmerized and just captured by her authenticity, her, her humility, her candor. Uh, her wisdom and her courage through as he's communicated her story. And it didn't take long before I thought, wouldn't it be great if Lisa could come and speak to our congregation and that they could learn some from her as well. And, and so, Lisa, thank you for joining us here today. I'm so glad that you have. Thank you. And good morning. It's great to be here with you, too. I, I'm also a graduate from Western Seminary. It's a, it has an amazing counseling program. So I graduated from Western, have worked in community-based mental health and street-based mental health, which which has been a a challenging and fun thing to do over the past seven years. And I currently have uh, private practices in both counseling and life coaching. It's work that I just love supporting people in in all walks of life. I've been married for 33 years now, and we have a 29-year-old son who works in the hospitality industry and lives in Salt Lake City, which which has its own set of stories. <laughs> but I have to admit, it's like of all the things I've done before, this is just, it's really, I can identify with the jitters of being up here because this is just a little bit uncomfortable. But this isn't a normal gig? No, no. For one thing, <laughs> I'm used to working one-on-one with people. Uh, but for another thing, when I was growing up, and this was like Cincinnati, Ohio, 1960s, my family would sit kind of towards the back of the church and I remember looking up front here and seeing my pastor standing and preaching and thinking what an incredible job he had. He was minister- ministering to us. He was shepherding us. It, it was just a, an unbelievable sense of awe and reverence that I had for him. And so I could never have imagined a scenario in which I would have been up here with him for any reason. And Growing up where I did and when I did, with cultures that did not mingle very well, 
I certainly couldn't have foreseen being on a platform with a white pastor. <laughs> right? Let's just get it out in the open, right? <laughs> and, I, and I chuckle about that because, yeah, I can understand how that would be a challenge. And then, of course, I'm over here sitting and, and just thinking about the irony that I'm sitting on this stage because if you'd have known me as a teenager, let's just say you would not have voted me you know, in the contest for most likely to become a pastor. Wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. So thank you for overcoming your fears and coming up here with, 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 with me because uh, if you just been that brief story, and we'll get into some more of our stories along the way, uh, Lisa and I are different. We're quite a bit different. Our, our backstories are very different. And, and it's actually because of our differentness that we are teaching here together today. Because as we go on through our journey through this book of Acts, you know, called Witnesses, uh, we've arrived at a major pivot point in the story at Acts chapter 10. And to understand that, there's a shift that's about to take place. I want to go back in the story, all the way back to chapter 1, where it started, with Jesus' words to his disciples. Hopefully you've become familiar with this, because it's the theme that we've been walking through the entire time. It provides basically the outline for the book. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so if you've been here through the story, you know that for the first eight chapters, we saw the gospel go first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria. And through that time, we've, we've, we've seen the various characters involved, but it's been mostly a Jewish context. Well, last week, that, there's a shift that happens in, in Acts chapter 9, and that was where we introduced to this character, Saul. And Saul is going to become an important part of the last section of taking it to the ends of the earth. He's going to become the leader for that. But before we, Saul, who becomes Paul, can become the leader in the church to the ends of the earth, Peter, who's been the leader of the church to this point, needs a bit of a course correction. You remember Peter? You know, Acts chapter 2, he's the one who stood up in front of the crowds and first proclaimed the gospel. He was the one that was the primary spokesperson through this story. He was the one in Acts chapter 8 where he was invited with John to go to Samaria to say, yes, look, the gospel is in Samaria too. Going back even farther into the Jesus stories captured in the Gospels, Peter was a leader of those early disciples. He was that out-in-front, kind of loud personality, seemingly born with his foot in his mouth, right? Because he's always talking about things, getting himself in trouble. But Jesus saw the leadership potential in Peter, and so he regularly praised him and corrected him, developing him as a leader. So really in Acts chapter 10, a lot of it is about Peter receiving another needed course correction as a leader so that the church can be unleashed to the ends of the earth. So that's where we're going to pick up in the story, the beginning of Acts chapter 10. But we're going to be introduced first to another important character in the story, a man by the name of Cornelius. So let's go ahead and take a look at Cornelius in the first verse of Act 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, uh, the angel said, and I I just want to stop there for a second. It's like we, we see a Roman centurion, which it seems a little unusual that he would be devoted to God, but here he is living wholeheartedly for him. Let's pick back up in four. 
the angel of God comes toward him and says his name, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in terror and said, well, what is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. And as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Cornelius is just living his life and living it for God to the best of his ability. He had no idea that he was about to be used as an instrument of change with God. Okay, so we're introduced to Cornelius, and next we're going to be introduced to Peter. But before I get to Peter, I want to frame what we're about to read through an important word, so through, through the lens of the word bias, which is, a, which is an prominent in our cultural conversations in the United States today. So just to make sure we're on the same page, I want to look at the Oxford Dictionary it defines bias this way. It says, prejudice in favor of or against one thing, person or group, compared with another, usually in a way considered to be unfair. In other words, we see things the way we see them, and we prefer it that way, especially when it's to our advantage. Now, sometimes this involves willful discrimination and prejudice. Other times, we are naively unaware of our own bias because we are captured by our own culture. We're like fish swimming in the ocean with a vague understanding of a difference between water and air, but a strong preference for water. That would be what it looks like to be culturally captured. And so in Acts 10, we can think of Peter as innocently biased because he is captured by his own culture. We can, back in Acts chapter 2, if you remember, the Spirit, when it first was broke out and the gospel was first preached, it was preached in every known language at the same time. You remember that? Because, of the, because they spoke in other tongues. And so it was basically the, the gospel was given in every culture at the same time. But since then, the Jewish believers, including Peter, have stayed pretty much captured by their Jewishness and their Jewish way of seeing things. And so this is where that course correction is necessary because success from here on out, you know, because success always rises and falls on leadership, God has some work to do with Peter. So let's pick up the story in verse 9. He says, the next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something, like a large sheet, was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. Now, for us here in 20th century America, for most of us who probably don't fully understand what's going on here, uh, because not, not many of us, there's probably a few of us here that are Jewish, but maybe some of you perhaps grew up near an Orthodox Jewish community that was living a strict kosher lifestyle, in the fact that the Israelite law, the law of Moses, you know, prohibited eating certain animals, uh, the ones listed here. But since we may understand it from a Jewish perspective, we can understand it from a Portland perspective, in that we live amongst vegans. Maybe a few here, right? And so if you think about it, if you had a vegan friend or family member, you invited them over for dinner, they're sitting in the living room, and then you went into the kitchen and you grabbed a nice, fat, juicy, rare steak. And you put it on a platter and you walked it into the living room and you said, get up, kill, eat. 
Or maybe even worse, if you invited that vegan friend to join you in the woods to field dress the elk you just killed. Okay? Maybe that gets a little closer to the sense of revulsion that Peter would immediately have felt. I mean, we can, we can make sense of that. And we can also say that the voice speaking to him made no sense at all. And so Peter being Peter, he, declared, he says, no, Lord, no. Now, notice the voice didn't identify himself, but Peter identifies the voice. Lord, he knows who's speaking here. He's heard this corrective voice before. And he's told him no before as well. And even though he still hasn't learned from it. But he says, no, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Now, maybe you have a hard time picturing Peter saying no to the Lord. But really, we do it all the time. If not with our words, with our actions. We say, no, Lord. But God is gentle with him, with Peter, and he's gentle with us as we, as we see next. He says, but the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And then the same vision was repeated three times and the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. And again, I I just have to know, I have to believe that Peter knew who was speaking and the fact that it was repeated three times. He had, it had to bring him back to when he denied Jesus three times. When after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus restored him three times, both in relationship and to leadership. Peter knows what's going on here, and yet he's so confused. He says Peter was very perplexed. I mean, what could this vision mean? Just, and he said, just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. And if you've ever heard the voice of the Lord, the still, small voice of the Lord, it usually comes when we're perplexed and we're confused, we're wondering what's going on, and then it's this sense of, go, go, I am sending you, and then also a sense of fear, and so you also can hear the voice saying, again, the gentle voice saying, don't worry, I am sending you. So we have Cornelius, who would have been a foreigner to Peter, actually more than a foreigner. He, he would have been more like an oppressor to the Jewish mind. He was likely a, a man of significant means um, since he was a Roman centurion and had servants at his disposal to send to go find Peter. And even though he worshipped the Jewish God, he still would have been considered outside the camp of Jewish communities and worship. And he would have had little in common with Peter. A little in common. Yeah, and Peter, he was, Peter was a part of the lower classes. He was a good Jew, which meant he was used to worshiping with people like him in the way that he's used to worshiping, the way that had been handed down for generations. And even though their lives had been transformed by Jesus, they still saw Jesus through primarily a Jewish lens. These, these two were very different. Yeah, there would have been a disconnect there. And I, I completely understand that disconnect I grew up in an all-black neighborhood in Cincinnati. Like, everybody had brown, black skin like me. And I remember being very comfortable in that. I loved being immersed in the traditions, the norms, the values that my community had. I remember I was just as likely to be disciplined by someone in my community who would then pick up the phone, call my parents, send me home, and I would get disciplined again when I got home. So you quickly learn, don't do things, because literally there are eyes all over the neighborhood watching you. 
But I love that sense of comfort that came from that and the sense of protection because at that time there was little intermingling between the cultures. And the mingling, intermingling that did happen tended to have one or two results. It either felt really awkward that you were doing this thing or it was very hostile. So staying within my own felt very comfortable. And it really wasn't until I went to school in fifth grade, I got the scholarship to go to a private school, that I interacted at any length with white students. It was very uncomfortable. I didn't have anyone to help me navigate that. And as you were growing up there in that context, I was growing up in the context of mostly rural Wisconsin and Minnesota. And growing up, I never had a friend of a different racial or ethnic background. Never. And, and it wasn't just like they lived on the other side of the tracks. It was like they didn't live anywhere near, I mean, like hundreds of miles. It was just, ethnically, it was very homogeneous. And all through my growing up years going to school, you know, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, I can remember one African-American student, not in my class, I mean, in the entire school, no Latino students, no Asian students, uh, at least until late in my high school years when some Laotian refugees had been resettled in a nearby town and went to my high school. But even then, they weren't in my classes. They were in those things called ESL classes over there. I mean, we were completely separate. And so when I graduated high school, I was captured by my culture that I grew up in. And I wasn't even aware of, of being captured by it, at least until I went to college down south. Down in Texas. Then I learned pretty quickly about my cultural biases. That differentness, that even that brief glimpse between Lisa and me and our growing up, you know, is similar to what Peter and Cornelius would have experienced. They simply didn't belong together. Not only didn't belong together, but it would have been very rare and, and unusual for them to cross over and interact at all with each other. And yet they did meet. And let's go to the text and see what that looked like. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night, and the next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you are. I mean, can you imagine a more awkward cross-cultural moment as that what an uncomfortable thing to have happen but as it continues they walked together and went inside where many others were assembled and peter told them you know it is against our laws for a jewish man to enter a gentile home like this or to associate with you but god has shown me that i should no longer think of any of you as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius goes on to explain in the following verses that the reason why he sent for him was that this man in dazzling white clothes came to him while he was in prayer and told him that his prayers had been answered and that his, his giving to the poor had not gone unnoticed, and that he was to send for Peter and bring him there. Now, I was thinking about this, and if that happened to me in my prayer, that, that would be like the first thing I'd want to get off my to-do list immediately. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. 
think what should jump off the page here, though, is the fact that the interaction between these two men was not the norm. It, it can be so easy to read through the text and you just go to the next verse and you're like, well, of course that's what happened. But this, this was a really unusual thing to have happen for either one of them. These two people didn't belong together. But Peter was willing to take the step forward away from his own traditions and to do so for the sake of the gospel. And it created an awkward moment. Yeah. A very awkward moment. Can you imagine somebody bowing down and going, get up, you know? Uh, it doesn't take me actually much to imagine awkward moments. You know, I think I'm pretty awkward socially, so, you know, I have them all the time. But culturally awkward moments, I have some in my background there as well, and I can relate to whether, you know, to the feeling that, that might have been going on. Uh, one, one happened in, when I was in seminary, and, and I was in Denver, Colorado. It was a seminary, it was mostly, mostly people who looked like me, and uh, there's a few that had different colors and, had, and different backgrounds. Uh, but one of those that was uh, African-American invited a group of us, we are friends together, to come join him in worship at, at his church in downtown uh, Denver. And so we went there, about six of us that had gone down there. And when we walked in the door with our friend, we were immediately learned that we were the, the, the six white people and 150 African-Americans worshiping together that morning. And I'll tell you, I immediately felt awkward and out of place, very anxious and, and just uncomfortable quite frankly, because I'm not used to being the minority. I, I'm, I'm part of the majority culture. I'm used to the environments that make sense to me, not to walk into ones that are very different. And so it was, took a little to overcome. You know, I walked in, though. I had my friend there. The people there were gracious. And so, you know, I was able to deal with my discomfort and then began to enjoy the differences. If you've ever been to an African-American church, the worship, boisterous, loud, enthusiastic, like a few in here, but not many of us. You know, and then the preaching, you know, same Bible, preaching it really well, but, but just lot, lot, louder and bigger and more demonstrative and not just a monologue, but a dialogue, right? Speak and respond. You know, I know a few of you here are like that because I hear you every now and then. You know, I like that, by the way, if you want to, you know, throw out an amen every now and then. But, but a dialogue, right? And so I'm, I'm getting into it. I'm enjoying the differences and kind of dealing with my own uncomfortability, at least until the, to the end of the message. When the pastor, you know, stood back to the end of the whole service, he, he stood back up and kind of, to me, out of nowhere said, it's offering time. And the whole place erupts into loud, loud you know, laughter and cheering and the elders of the church file up here in front with their buckets. And then the people are, re, are, are re, were sent row by row to come up and give their offerings to the leaders in front of the whole church. We should try that sometime. What do you think? <laughs> Maybe not. But see, as, a, as an act, as a practice, my own personal practice, I don't carry cash because then I just spend it. And so I can't that way. I didn't have anything to offer. So I'm sitting there going, I am overwhelmed with anxiety because if I go up there and they see me, I don't have anything to offer. But if I sit back here, I mean, what? it was a very awkward moment culturally. <laughs> and so I'm just in my head imagining the ushers going back row by row, getting closer to you and wondering, <laughs> what were you going to do? In that? What How was I going to do? I actually never solved that. It was one of those good news, bad news things that I was kind of in near the back of the church. Good news was I had time to think about it. Bad news was I just got increasingly more anxious because I had no idea what to do. Thankfully, the usher solved it for us. He kind of, kind of gave us a little wink and walked past our row because we were obviously visitors. <laughs> and so he spared us the agony. But yeah, that was pretty awkward. <laughs> I do think you should start instituting it. I think so too. <laughs> I, I, I can completely understand that awkwardness of the cultural clash that happens there because I've had a number of those. 
But one of the ones that stuck out the most to me was fifth grade when I got the scholarship to go to the private school and, and attending a school in the wealthiest neighborhood in Cincinnati. As it turned out, my parents were employees of one of the families of this school. My mother was the downstairs maid. My dad was a part-time yard man for this family. And so my classmate Tim's mother told my mom that I could come home with Tim after school and wait for her, uh, wait for my mom to get off work. So I remember that first day, getting on, out of school and walking over to, like, it was literally a mansion. It was the, most, the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life and still is. And walking into that house um, and hearing Tim's mom say to my mother, could you please take the children to the library and serve them a snack? And I thought, well, this is going to be pretty cool, actually, right? They got a library. <laughs> and so I walked into, like, they have a live, like, floor-to-ceiling library with books and a fireplace. And I thought, this is incredible. I cannot wait for this experience. Until I realized my mother was walking in with a silver tray and her black and white uniform to serve us. And I thought how uncomfortable this moment is that here I'm sitting with my fifth grade peer, like he's, he's a colleague, but this is my mother serving me. Like this does not happen where I come from. And I, I found myself wondering why couldn't we have just gone to the kitchen and gotten the snacks ourselves and served ourselves instead of having my mother have to do this thing for me. And I just realized I was standing on this bridge between these two cultures in a really different environment and I yeah. didn't like it. Yeah. I I have nothing to relate to that. <laughs> wow. So you had to have made eye contact with your mom. Yeah. I mean, what was what oh, was yeah. that like for you? <laughs> made that eye contact. I remember looking at her and then looking at Tim and looking back to my mother and wondering like what what am I was looking for her to guy like what am I supposed to do here? I wanted to hop up and help her. And so Without missing a beat, she went over, she served Tim his, I don't know, his peanut butter and, like, who puts that on a silver tray? Um, and then when she came over to me and leaned over, I remember her with, just leaning really close and whispering in my ear, when you get home, there will be extra chores. <laughs> Fair enough. I, like, will gladly do those for you, too. Good to have other people share awkward stories, right? <laughs> so I hope, I hope that you have stories like that, that you have stories of encountering, you know, the difficulty, the awkwardness of crossing cultural barriers, cultural differences than yours, and feeling out of place. I mean, those kind of cultural differences are challenging to overcome. Can we just admit that? It's, they are challenging. And yet when we give in to the idea of not crossing them, when we stay safe in our own cultural realm, uh, we remain isolated. We see the world dimly and we miss out on the beauty that God has in mind by creating us different. So that's why God through Jesus calls us to cross cultural barriers like he's, like he's had Peter do, like he's had Cornelius do. And it takes faith in him and trusting him to do that. So that's what happened to Peter, and we see the result that happens in verse 34. So Peter, when he's, he's at Cornelius' house, and he, and he sees Cornelius, you know, he hears from Cornelius, and so he comes to this in, beginning in verse 44. 
The 34. He says, Peter replied, I see very clearly now that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. In every nation. In every nation. And the, the imagery here, I see very clearly now. Peter's eyes have been opened. He, his blindness, his spiritual and cultural blindness, it's like scales have been removed from his eyes. He comes to this realization, God doesn't show favoritism. In other words, no culture, no race, no ethnicity has a privileged claim on the gospel. No, it's given to all of us. In other words, that the, the, these powerful moments that happen, in other words, create a, an opportunity for, for us to see. Now, I call this Peter's cultural boom moment, that aha moment, that powerful moment that, that then transforms how you see things from then on out. And I know just from the bits and pieces, I know your story that, that you had a rather significant cultural boom moment in your college years. Yeah, I did. So that, that school that I got to graduate from, that great little private school, set me up for a, a great scholarship to Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, not very diverse. I'll <laughs> just put that out there. But I remember being so honored that I'd been able to get this education and was heading on to a school that was, was really well sought after in terms of attendance that I wanted to make sure that I gave it my all. So I'd made this commitment to myself that I was going to be very career-driven. I was interested, I was not interested in ever having a family. I didn't want to get married. I was not going to date anyone and just focus on hitting the books. And so when I got to campus, my third day freshman year, I met this incredibly shy young man and had one of the most painfully (laughs) awkward uh, conversations with because of his shyness, but found out that he had the same love of jazz music that I did, that he loved his sport, basketball, as much as I loved my sport, track, and we had that very much in common, too. We had, we had so many different things that were, were just on the same level and jiving that I loved it. Except for one thing. He was from a very different culture. I mean, he's a white guy. And so because of that, I thought he'd be pretty safe to be a friend with because there's no way I would ever date a white guy. I just wouldn't date outside of my race. And so we found ourselves spending a lot of time together And subsequently, a lot of our friends started asking us, are you dating? Like, what's going on? Why are you hanging out with this this white guy? And I remember thinking, that's just not okay. Like, I don't want people questioning that about me. And I backed up and kind of distanced myself from him without saying anything. Well, my sophomore year, the Ku Klux Klan left some material at the African American Society and vandalized a building. And as God would have it, Uh, my friend, my white friend and I were chosen to go talk to the administration about this because the college had absolutely no response to this. They weren't willing to defend or speak to the safety or concern of their minority students. If you knew my friend, you would have known that he was this very soft-spoken, calm, diplomatic young man. That's not me. (laughs) And so I watched while he sat there and very politely and respectfully asked for what he thought should be a response from this school. 
And I became more agitated and angry that we weren't getting anywhere with this. And so I remember pounding my fist on the desk of the president's and his office and saying, you know what, I am so tired of being marginalized because of my race. I'm so tired of the lack of respect that I'm given for the struggles that I go to. And I am offended that you won't give voice in defense of what's going on here. And as soon as I closed my mouth, I heard in my head, and that's exactly what you did in this friendship. You didn't defend your right to know and respect someone just because he was from a different culture. And it just hurt that I had those blinders on but hadn't seen them before. One of the things that, in hearing your story and before and hearing it again, just that, again, that I admire is the candor of the situation and that you had every right to speak in that way and yet in, in, in that circumstance and yet you also heard it oh this is about me as well and so you learned something about yourself in that scenario yeah I, I realized that I had to address my own biases too that I had to be aware of where I drew the line or where my comfort zone was and that became a cultural boom moment for you that that in many ways you're still living it, it really did I I had to leave that meeting and sit down with this young man and apologize for the distancing that I had put there without even having a conversation um, and, and repair that friendship with him. And the result was that we, we were really close friends all through college, graduated, moved to separate states, and then got married. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, cultural boom moments. So many. And, and, you know, I think of my own story and just trying to pick different ones along the way. And, and there's, there's one that just really came to my mind of in living in Denver. That time, my time in Denver going to seminary, I was being shaped not only what was going on at school, but also relationally and culturally in so many ways. And, and I, we specifically chose to go to a, a church that was going hard after being a multicultural church. And, and on that, I was, I was interning there, and there was another intern on staff that... I started avoiding, and it was because I was uncomfortable around him. I was uncomfortable around him because he's a lot younger than I was. He was a big, he was a big guy. I mean, like offensive lineman kind of big. He was black, and he was brash. He had a, he had a strong personality, strong opinions, and it, and it hit several of my cultural hot buttons, things that I'm intimidated by, and so I was wary of him, and I kind of held him at arm's length and, until one day I was trying to help somebody who's in need, and, and Brandon, my friend, was in, or he was in charge of the, uh, of the mercy fund, and so I had to go in there, and so I kind of, like, okay, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to ask for this money, and then I'm going to get out. It was kind of my, my idea, and so I went into his office, and I, I don't even remember how it started, but we ended up in a conversation that lasted a couple hours. And it was like these layers were being peeled off of each of us. I, I discovered along the way that he'd been avoiding me too, that he was intimidated by me, that, that we actually had so much more in common than we ever imagined. Even though our backstories were night and day different, we had both been rescued from our stories by the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And out of that had birthed this love for Jesus and his church that we, that, that we had in common. And, and we started a friendship from that point forward to the, to the point where, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I'd never had any friends of other ethnicities. And now he's in my house and I'm in his house and I'm learning so much about his culture. He's learning about mine. My kids start calling him Uncle Brandon. And, and to this day, when we talk about each other, he says, oh, that's my, that's my brother from a different mother. I mean, our hearts are knit together. So that was a very important boom moment for me. So, so what did it feel like for you when you started to feel those misconceptions fading away? It, it was one of those moments where you're kind of having two feelings at the same time. Because I was, part of me was just sad. I had missed out on so much. I mean, this was an incredible human being, his story and what he'd been rescued from and the differentness uh, of him of, and to learn from that. And, and yet I was also excited because a new friend is birthing here. I mean, we have so much in common, and it was just that weird dichotomy of both celebrating and mourning a bit as well. So we crossed that barrier, (laughs) and we're able to find out a little bit about ourselves, but something about the other people that we encountered too. Yes. It's like Peter crossed that barrier, and it opened the door for him to share the gospel. And that's where we're going to pick up in Acts 10, verse 36. It says, this is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear not to the general public, but to us, whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. It's like what you see is like the gospel did not change because of the differences of these men. It's like Jesus lived, he died. He was resurrected. This was the Messiah that was promised by the prophets, that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven. And notice it's in verse 42, it's almost like Peter is preaching to himself when he said, he ordered us to preach the gospel everywhere. Yeah, and by crossing the barrier and preaching the good news, they saw the same response that they had seen in the other context, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They saw the same thing. And the next verse is in verse 44. He says, Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. Cultural boom moment, right? Wow! And they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. So they saw the same results uh, of the people putting their trust in Jesus in the gospel. And so, of course, Peter says, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? The reason he even has to ask that is because... The idea of baptizing Gentiles, again, foreign. They never even imagined this. 
but how could we not? And so he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And let's not overlook this last sentence. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. A group of Jewish believers, a group of Gentiles, uh, different cultures, different backgrounds, staying together for several days. Cultural barriers had been broken down because of what Jesus had done through the gospel. That is why I really wanted to teach this with Lisa's because just in our brief interactions that we've had and the sharing of stories and the more we, we share stories, the more we realize our backgrounds are night and day different. And yet the gospel is the good news to you and your story, the good news to me and my story. And we're better together than we are separately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as engaging as this story is, as engaging as like listening to your story and interacting with that is, it's like it, it falls flat if we don't put some action to that. Who said amen? <laughs> God bless you. I love that. I just love it. Let's keep this conversation going while we're up here. And so I, I, I have to invite you into this story with Peter that has continued forward in time. Um, for everyone here to consider how the gospel compels you to take steps to, of faith to move past the cultural gaps that we have and cross bridges to understanding to other people. And as the two of us were kind of thinking through some action steps that we could offer to you in, in order to do that, we came up with an acronym that has a three-point emphasis, and that acronym is ACT. The A in ACT starts for awareness. And I think we both kind of alluded to that in our stories, is that we had to become really aware of our own biases like our own comfort level and, and, and the blinders that we put on for ourselves and to move past those. It amazes me how many variables there are between cultures. Even we just saw that here. Like I'm used to the church always going back and forth. The service ends when it ends, not at a specific time. And if somebody in the third row wants to start a song, they just start it, you know? Like very different cultural variables. And it took my husband, who grew up in the Episcopal Church, a long time to figure out, like, that, can you do that? Is that all right? Uh, But to get past that in his own comfort level. So I need you to consider becoming more aware of where you are as a cultural being and where your, cult, your comfort level um, lies so that you can push past it. So that you can push past it, mm-hmm. which leads to the C, which is a curiosity, a curiosity about other cultures, other ethnicities. What was it like for them to be them? If you're like me, uh, you know, my, when I encounter things that are different than me, the C words that I would be more likely to choose are compare, critique, and criticize to find fault in, to, again, to try to hold on to what I have and not be threatened by what they might have. But, but when we're curious, we lean into, you know, when we're critique, we stay separate from, we stay aloof from. When, we, when we're curious, we lean into and we go on a discovery mission. And we, in a lot of ways, this is, this is like a, what the Bible calls us to in terms of repentance. You know, we're heading one direction that is culturally, culturally captured, and we choose to know, I'm going to go a different direction towards others that aren't like me, and be curious about that. And, and when we do that, we lay aside our pride, and we humbly look for what we can discover about Jesus in the other. There's something I can learn about Jesus from their culture, from their ethnicity. And when it comes to cultural differences, curiosity keeps us in a heart-open posture that is so necessary for growth and maturity. And then the T in ACT stands for taking chances. 
And this is the really messy, challenging, uncomfortable part. Because it's one thing to know more about yourself and be curious about other people, but getting up, taking action, taking a chance like your pastor did when he walked up to me in that class that day and said, I think we need to do something together. That takes some courage. I'm taking her home with me. I'm just doing that. It's like a couple of weeks ago, your pastor James uh, did a sermon in which he invited you, and challenged you actually, to walk across the room, to be intentional in coming into a space and seeing someone who's different, who may be a little out of your comfort zone, and, and, and with intention, walk up and get to know more about them. I'd like to build on his challenge a little bit and I'd ask you to consider the opportunities you have right here on this campus. Like, what would it be like for you to step out in faith and get uncomfortable with the service on Saturday with Light My Way or to attend the Spanish-speaking service on a Sunday afternoon? I, I would be really interested to see how that goes for you when you do. Take chances, which is what you've done by being up here. And so I just want to say... Thank you to you for taking a chance on us, for sitting up here on stage with a white pastor in front of a congregation. <laughs> and, and inviting us, inviting all of us to continue the story, a story that you've been living out, that I've been living out, let's, and to live it out together. And in fact, would you help us do that by, by praying for us? I love it. Let's, in fact, let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you that we do not live this Christian walk in isolation and that you want us to work together, to live together, to grow, and even go through the messy parts of this faith together. I just want to thank you that you've promised that someday every tribe and every nation will stand before you in worship, and I long for that day. I pray that you give us all the, the faith, the strength, and the courage to step up and make a difference to get out of our comfort zones for you, for, for the gospel. And as much as I sometimes feel like a toddler with a wooden spoon in a kitchen working with a master chef, I, I, think that, I thank you that you allow me to do that work with you and, and that you, you will work through me and for me when it's necessary. Thank you so much, Lord, for your faithfulness. Yes, God, I agree, and I thank you for how you have created us differently in so many ways, and yet you call us to unite through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who has called us um, to follow you, Jesus, follow you across divides, across gaps, to build bridges, to enjoy the differentness you've designed into us, that we might know more of you as a result. And Would you give each one here, starting with me, the courage to, to take those steps of faith toward others who are different than us? And in order to discover more about you and to discover more about each of us. I pray believing, Jesus, in your name. Amen.